Hi everyone, this is Sarah Dimes and Yikami Otari, co-founders of Dukari. Hi there, welcome to our Sofa Chats podcast, where we talk to business owners and leaders about their business journey in an informal way. During our business growth series, we'll be chatting with business owners and execs who have grown their business organically through raising cash, acquisition, merger, and franchising. We hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Yekemi Otaru. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Louise Wood, Managing Director of ProDrill. Thank you, Yekemi. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming. So we want to start with your journey, your, your career journey to date. So right now you're Managing Director of ProDrill. How did you get there? Oh, wow. Um, well, I was lucky enough to start in the oil industry in 1987 when I worked for a drilling contractor. Um, which no longer exists. Um, like many businesses, they've been swallowed up by many other organisations. Um, and then I actually um, moved out of that sector into recruitment mm. um, about 1989, uh, when I first worked for a large company called Manpower. Okay. Um, and my career there started my career journey of recruitment. Yeah. So I've been lucky enough to work for some of the large blue chip organisations, um, companies like Kelly Services, um, the Hayes Group, but I held a senior position for, for many years. And then I happened to uh, do a piece of recruitment for the Sovereign Oil Field Group okay. um, and was approached by the um, then chairman um, of the Sovereign Oil Field Group to ask if I would like to come in and be part of the ProDrill's transformational journey and take over as managing director. Oh, fantastic. And so in your career, have you done other sectors apart from oil and gas? What are yeah, some of I mean, sectors? I, I focused um, a huge amount in my early career working in large corporate accounts. I worked for in the recruitment sector for clients like British Telecom, Scottish Gas. Um, latterly, I then um, went in and worked within the public sector organisations. Yeah. So I had a, a lot of exposure to the universities um, in my early career um, within the recruitment sector. Um, but my passion then fell to work for the accountancy and finance sector. Okay. So I did a lot of senior commercial appointments in the um, the areas of accountancy, finance, business analysts, etc. So I spent 10 years working for Hayes Group within that profile. Okay. Um, so that allowed me to really get a feel for business. And that's really where my passion for sort of helping um, businesses in the recruitment sector continues. Wow, fantastic. It sounds like you've had quite a varied career, a varied journey. Are there people in that journey that helped you get to where you are? What are some of the inspirational people oh, that wow. helped you through your journey? Yeah, I think um, as a young um, recruitment person, you're driven by your own desire to want to earn money mm. and deliver deliver results for, for the organisation. I was very lucky enough in my early recruitment days to have a fantastic mentor manager, Rona, um, when I worked for Kelly Services. Um, she didn't suffer fools. You know, <laughs> you were either on our bus or you weren't, but she would give you 150%. Yeah. So I was very lucky to have her. Uh, that then led to work for some senior executives in the Hayes Group. Um, a chap who always stands out to me was a chap called Ross Hetherington, who was the managing director of Hayes, the Hayes Group. And he, he let you develop yourself but was always there to back up mm. so I was very lucky and then latterly to be given an opportunity working for Sovereign Group um, and I have to highlight um, two colleagues in that in, in terms of uh, Graham Burgess um, unfortunately Graham's no longer with us and he was a he was a very 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 good business person 
we used to call him Blue Sky Burgess. <laughs> so he, he was very good, somebody you could lend. And a, and a good friend and, and colleague of mine, Julie Cowie, who's, who's taught me everything about finance that I know. Fantastic. So going back to, I guess, your role at ProDrill, one of the main things we're looking at in this series is companies that are growing and the different ways companies grow. So we've got obviously organic growth where it's kind of slow and steady and I guess more controlled and you've got mergers and acquisitions and so on. So here at ProDrill, you went through a management buyout a few yeah, years ago. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, um, the oil industry is very cyclic, as we know, and there's 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 peaks and troughs. And I think in the last five years, it's, to be fair, we've kind of gone through quite a deep, deep trench um, for, for many organisations. But prior to that, I think, you know, as we say, it's very cyclic. And the Sovereign Oil Field Group that we were part of um, we we were purchased with them in um, by we we did a management buyout in two thousand and nine. If I remember mm-hmm. like my dates off the top of my head, so it's ten years ago. But um, I joined the organisation in two thousand and six, and they'd just gone through a huge acquisition trail. Mm-hmm. They were buying oil service companies, etc. And I think within a very quick period of time, um, obviously the uh, the American investment market changed. And um, there were some changes in sovereign strategy. So we didn't want to be part of something that we couldn't control. And it took some time to, to, to take the business out of um, a successful business. Mm. Um, they were very reluctant to let Prodrill go because we were a bit of their crown, crown and glory. Mm. We turned a business that was loss making in, you know, in, in 2006 to a very profitable business in 2008. So I think they were very reluctant to let us go. So we yeah. had to negotiate pretty tough with them mm. to, to let us go. Um, and, and that proved to be a big learning journey, 18 months of refinancing, looking at investment and, and how we could we could support us as an independent business. Okay. Wow. So um, you learn a lot about yourself and the people around you who, yeah. who can help you through that journey. Yeah. So that brings us nicely to a question I have, which is, what are like two, three, two, three things that you've learned in your business journey so far that you would say to someone who is on the same journey as you, you would say to them, these two, three things you need to keep in mind. What would those things be? Believe in what you do and stand by it. Know your finances, know your, where your profit's coming from and how you can structure um, that business to grow or also be resilient through the downturn mm. or tough times. Um, and keep loyal people to you close. Mm. People are absolutely critical, and through your career and through your business journey, people will come and go because people have different objectives. But if you can hold on to the core people within your team who are loyal to you, it'll pay dividends. Mm. And if we go to kind of ProDrill, where you are now, what would you say ProDrill is best known for? Okay, so in the market in the last sort of 10 years, we've been predominantly known as a manpower business that's focused within the technical sectors. So about three years ago, we type, decided to re-look at our area of specialisms because one of the things that we focused on heavily was drilling in wells. So anything from drilling engineers, drilling superintendents, management, etc. And that was, that was a very, very buoyant. Exploration and production was very, very buoyant and it was very demanding. Um, however, through the, the, the downturn and the changes on, on the requirements for specialist technical skills, as a business, you have to become more resilient. Mm. So about three years ago, we recategorized our businesses and we look at eight key, eight key sectors now across the right. recruitment. We're still very heavily technical biased. 
However, and we don't class ourselves as a generalist manpower business, but we do specialise purely now covering all areas within the service sector, from drilling services right through to completions, well services, management, decommissioning, um, which is obviously a key area. Yeah. So anything that still has a technical bias from project to engineering, but where they require the manpower resources to understand not just limited company contractors, but we cover permanent people, which is our staffing solution area, mm. as well as limited company contractors and PYE. But there's changing landscape as well within the, the UK mm. um, contractor population. So that has an effect on some of the services that businesses will be able to offer solutions to in the future. Okay. And what are some of the emerging, I guess, challenges and topics right now that you're dealing with in your industry? Oh, legislation, <laughs> legislation and legislation. Um, it comes no surprise when you work within the manpower sector that the UK contractor population is going through a huge change around the subject of IR35. Mm. This has been something that's been sitting in the sector for about two years since the public sector reform came in. I was lucky enough to be part of the Oil & Gas UK team. As Oil & Gas UK members, we we set up a working group um, headed up by Dr. Alex Tom, and we spent the past 18 months navigating Mm. the consultations with the government and the changes. At the moment, we're still with draft legislation. However, we're waiting to hear from what is the new government on on when the final finance bill will come out. So the contractor, the, the use of a temporary worker population is changing. Mm -hmm. I think the market still has a key requirement for contracted experience. However, as there is more compliance surrounding that for end user clients, then clients are becoming slightly more risk averse Mm -hmm. to that processes and are changing their strategies. So in the next, we've been navigating changes for 18 months and how that might shape up. We're now just getting to the, the final sort of stage, you know, of that. So I think it's important that contractors temporary workforce become informed of the changes and end user clients are very proactive in how they want to handle their future recruitment requirements because I think we still need a flexible workforce and that's going to be important for for the the, the oil and gas industry it's going to be quite critical for the oil and gas industry over the next five years. And what role are you and Prodrew kind of playing in this? You know, you, you see yourself as consultants, advisors, advocates. What, what role do you see yourself? Yeah, playing? I mean, I think as a recruitment business, we are here to find people for roles and find opportunities for people. Mm. There is compliant processes that go along that. So we've acted in many cases as advisors for clients. Mm. We've been very proactive in our communication with contractors and clients to understand what they they need we've we've also been a middleman between relationships between the end user client and a a compliance solution so we've introduced third-party working companies who specialize in in more advanced skills for this Mm -hmm. subject so we've acted um you know we believe very proactively and we've built up a really good knowledge of how the rules are applied and i think that's really important for especially for end user clients to understand that in their supply chain they have people who are knowledgeable, but also for contractors who are feeling, you know, rightly so at the moment, a little bit uncertain about their future and how those recruitment opportunities will shape up for them. So you also need to be able to be have a listening ear, try and explain legislation and and, and also be firm that if things are changing, then we all have to adapt. Yeah. Change is coming. We just need to be armed in how we manage that change. Yeah. 
Well, it just seems like a lot of changing times for the oil and gas industry after coming in, well, we're kind of coming out of a downturn and then this, so. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, there are great opportunities for companies here to still retain flexibility within their, their, their workforce, but also there's great opportunities for individuals. Sometimes we get a little bit, the noise gets a little bit too much mm. for people to focus. We've all still got to deliver the results for companies. And I think companies more than ever at the moment through political changing landscapes, Brexit, referendum too potentially, all these things are going to hinder companies doing the day job. And I think we need to make sure that we are being fair and reasonable to people um, who have supported companies through change. And yes, there's a lot of distractions at the moment and we've still got to get on with the day job, which is delivering the production results and delivering the exploration programmes for clients. Yeah, okay. So... I'd like to go back again to kind of the management buyout process and, you know, what were the key kind of milestones in that process? And you went through that process, what was it, 10 years ago, you said? Yeah, it was it was 2009, May 2000, um, sorry, 14th of September 2009 yeah. that we actually completed the deal. Mm. Um, we probably were very heavily entrenched from about May of 2009, but we started the process in about February 2008. Okay. So, well um, so part of that is the due diligence that businesses have to go through banks, your relationships with those institutions, how to raise finance, um, where's the capital, the working capital coming from and how is that going to be shaped up? And a lot of that is spent doing three to five year business plans. Okay. You know, you've got to spend a lot of time shaping up how you're going to raise that working capital um, looking at your business partners. So selecting from your um, professional advisors right through mm. to the, the individuals from the banks so if you're looking at a, an investment from a, a, a bank um, a funded uh, mechanism then which bank which mechanism what does the return on investment look like what are they expecting what finance negotiation levels can you you know you, you can get to mm. you know because you want to make sure that you're maintaining costs you know, so you've got to look at all that. And, and you've also got to be attractive to that proposition, mm. you know, that you're forecast. So we've been lucky enough to be supported through that journey from the investment side with very, very strong relationships. So that's really important. OK, so when you talk about relationships, you're talking about relationships with maybe other um, other members of the management team, relationships with the bank. Yeah, you've got to have, so from your board of directors, so you've got to have a strong board of director population. You've got to have a common goal that you all want to achieve the same thing and the business plan is drafted. Then you've got to have the right professional advisors. Mm. So making sure that you are engaging you know, well with your, your, your chartered accountancy firms, the right. relationship with your banks. And then how does that disseminate into your relationship with your directors and your management and then your staff? Mm-hmm. So coming through as a small business, and we're still an SME business that, that has a speciality. So everybody has to be on that relationship journey yeah. and understand that as a small business, we have different challenges than someone who comes from a large company mm-hmm. who doesn't understand potentially or get the exposure to different departments yeah. so i think it's really important that that relationships are cradle to grave relationships mm-hmm. relationships really seem really key in most of what you're talking about um just in case we have listeners who are not sure what a management buyout is what would you say a management buyout is oh having sleepless nights <laughs> knowing that you can you can uh, pay your staff the next day you can you can deliver what you see on expectations to clients and, and actually Taking it, stripping it all away, taking the risk. Okay. You know that you know nobody goes into a management buyout without any risk. 
there's always risk in everything that you do. Yeah. It has to be calculated and it has to be realistic and, and set realistic milestones. You're never going to go from zero to ten overnight. Yeah. You have to do it in very much a you know a staged process. And 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 part of that will then be that, that you might have had a goal and then you need to rethink that goal and reset a new goal or rethink your strategy. And one of the things would be to have regular strategy reviews that you are still, you know. And there are things that you can't control and there's things that you can control. Yeah. So focus on the things you can control and not worry about the things you can't control. Do you have an example of something that you thought was going to go one way and then went a different way? Yeah, so in, so in 2014, our business was at its ultimate peak. It, it, it achieved and surpassed every expectation in terms of budgets, targets, staff, etc. And then the thing that you can't control is the oil price. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm probably not sharing anything that any business owner, whether you're large or small, didn't factor in. You couldn't cover every eventuality. Yeah. So it's about how you adapt. And the one thing as a business owner and even for our management team and our staff is you learn a lot about yourself in these times. Yeah. You know, and where you maybe thought you were going to retire at fifty. You know, my goal is maybe now fifty-eight. It's maybe been extended because you have to reconsolidate your thought process Absolutely. and what are the key factors, what's the important things. Mm. And you've witnessed a lot of difficult times. I mean, apart from the downturn that happened in 2014, prior to that, you know, we saw different types of economic downturn. Yeah. So through these tough times, what are some of the hardest decisions that you have to make to take a business forward? You always got to look at your people. You've got to look at, performance of those those individuals and if you if, if you're an organization who's small or even medium sized if you've managed your performance reviews in the right process then those decisions that you take have would be very tough because if the decision is easy then you haven't had the right processes yeah. in the first place you've got to make tough decisions and um, i think you've got to understand your corporate overheads and maintain those aspects and be very very lean so you, you have to cut costs if you if that's what you have to do and cutting costs doesn't mean about cutting people all the time it is about how can you work smarter yeah. so we took a decision at that point rather than trying to cut over people we reduced our working week to four and a half days yeah, yeah? and one of the one of the key benefits of working for us now is we all finish at 12 o'clock on a friday now there's challenges that face that because actually it's increased productivity longer term because people have that opportunity to extend their weekend but when you work in a client deadline environment, you then rely on a bit of goodwill mm. after those working hours to, to extend that yeah. service to your clients. So, there, you know, you, you balance up goodwill versus making decisions for the right reason. Mm. And, and where you can only penalise, only reduce where you, you, you know you can reduce without reducing to the core and beyond. Mm-hmm. And, and, but also at the same time, over that period of time, we've actually spent money on other things. Yeah. So we've spent increased staff training. That's been key for us to keep sure, ensuring that we develop the people that we do actually have here um, and also looking at our systems. How do we improve our systems and our processes to digitalise as much as possible? So there's been a significant investment for us to actually digitalise. And I don't think if we hadn't digitalised to the point that we have, we wouldn't have possibly got through it mm. because you don't have the same amount of, of staff to be able to, to cover that digitalization. Yeah. I know that you recently invested a great deal in GDPR and making sure that as a business you were compliant. So I know that it's an area that you you know you don't take lightly. No, I mean I mean people's personal details have always been core to us. Yeah. Um, but in recruitment businesses in general, 
having legacy databases for recruitment businesses if they, if for any that still have that just creates a compliance nightmare yeah. so we we spent six months actually you know getting our database down to a 25 percent of where it used to be yeah. to ensure that we maintained our, our compliance process yeah. and that everything in our database is, is relatively fresh and that, and that the candidates can trust that the process is there so I think you know you have to sometimes go through this pain mm. and it's very difficult when you're a recruitment business to let information go yeah but you have to do it for the right reasons yeah absolutely so your role has has changed probably over time can you talk me through how your role has changed as managing director over time I think my background is predominantly a sales business development process. Um, But when you come into an environment that requires, I've also been very lucky enough to work for organisations and learned a lot of skills over the years about structure and compliance. There's two backbones to our business. There's our recruitment arm, which is obviously about our people. And then there's our finance and compliance arm, which is about the process. And at the end of the day, you're only as good as the last person you pay. And you're yeah. only as good as the last time you get paid from a client. And that's the hard <laughs> yeah. reality of running a business. You have to ensure those those two backbones are, are in tandem. Um, so my role has changed very much more to the financial and legal integrity of the business to ensure that in oil and gas, we remain compliant within our, our standards and our processes and making sure that our infrastructure is here, regardless how small we are. Yeah. We are actually a very, very compliant organisation and compliance is important to us. We have a very good and strong client relationship director that works for the business who leads up the sales team. So I don't need to cross over his toes every day and he doesn't need to cross over mine. But the long and the short of it is managing director. It's my name that signs the documents and it's my name that endorses our client contracts and our consultancy contracts. So you have to take, you have to be above reproach in that respect. Yeah. Fantastic. So looking forward to 2020, we've been seeing a lot about 2020 vision. We've played on that at the car ourselves. But where do you see Prodrill next year and beyond? Where What's the vision? So so like yourselves, we've um, very much endorsed Oil and Gas UK's 2035 vision. We've signed up to that. We're very much talking about, you know, helping and supporting the infrastructure within the oil and gas. I think at this moment in time, over the next six months, we're going into We've came through one political change within um, our, our government last week. We now need to ensure that as businesses in the UK, we remain driven to get our finance bill out on time mm. and we need to make sure that we understand what those implications are to our workforce. We've also got um, the Matthew Taylor Review and the Good Work Plan coming up next in the legislation. So that's something else that we need to ensure that individuals are fully aware of their rights and and, and processes. Mm. So I see the next six months in our business still being very compliant orientated Mm. and working with clients, but also challenging clients to think outside their box and, Mm. you know, not be scared because legislation is one thing and we have to change all the rules. We've already got a very good structure in the oil and gas, so we really need to continue to support that. We will continue down our... Um, recruitment journey and we do see a shift in the market we're seeing right. about 25% of our vacancies now coming in from clients to be staff roles right. opposed to interim or contractor roles so that's a really big shift for the sector so that kind of continues to endorse vision 2035 about x y and skills needing being mm-hmm. required we're also seeing roles coming in um, from clients that are more um, they cross over each other um, where clients are working with maybe less resources, so individuals are expected to be a bit more adaptable mm. to the type of roles. 
So we might have in the past had a completely clear role where it was a drilling engineer and then a completion engineer. Right. Now it's a drilling and completions engineer. Mm. So, you know, you can see roles in client structures changing as well. Right. Um, so we see that being, you know, where you're now having to re-educate candidates into the how versatile they need to be. Right. And I think we also, as an industry, need to start and keep encouraging the energy transition. So I think, you know, from our perspective, we're going to start seeing more changes around exploration and production into more of the general energy transition right. around renewables and obviously decommissioning as well. Um, we see that as a key sector for our, ourselves going forward too. Mm. So who are your kind of main type of clients and what kind of businesses and sectors are you working with now and do you expect that to change? Yeah, I would say um, we're still heavily predominantly dealing with the oil companies, the oil operators, but in the last 12, 18 months, we've been dealing with more, far more of the larger service companies right. and um, middle tier service companies. That's been key for us as part of our strategy is to look at revenue income and coming from different areas. I think there's key roles that you'll start to see come through through the 2035 vision and the, and the requirement for some of the labour changes around some of, some more technical type roles. Okay. Um, but I don't think that landscape's fully laid out yet in terms of what all of those those parent roles will actually be. So I'd say in the next two years, we would probably see some more transitioning into new disciplines. Whilst they're still in our core areas, they may be coming through digital transformation and technology as much as, as heavy engineering. Okay, fantastic. And if someone listening wants to know more about ProDrill and the services that you offer, where can they find more information? We're very active on our, our um, LinkedIn page. Um, so you will find us at Prodrill Energy Resource Solutions on LinkedIn. We've got we're very active on our Twitter page, and obviously we've got our, our company corporate website, which is www.prodrill-ers.com. Fantastic! Thank you, Louise. I really appreciate you coming. And on thank our you, and, and thank you for inviting <laughs> me to do the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Mine too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Karu Sofa Chats. Please find us at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher to subscribe to listen to more episodes. If you enjoy an episode, please review it and share it with a friend who you think might get some value from it. Thank you.